In my case, self-absorption is completely justified. I have never discovered any other subject so worthy of my attention. Welcome to Your Pick, a film podcast. I'm Geneva. And I'm Tatum. We are two friends who love movies and love sharing them with each other. Each week, we take turns picking a film that is close to our hearts and talk about why it moves us, to tears, to laughter, and everything in between. We celebrate the craft of filmmaking, as well as the unique and personal ways we find meaning in the movies we watch. All right, back again, Tatum. Yes. How's it going? It's going good. good. Yeah. No no complaints. Uh super, you know, busy with planning mm-hmm. film things, but I'm I'm good. Yeah. Good. How yeah. about you, Geneva? How are you doing? It's going great. <laughs> <laughs> have you seen anything recently that you might want to I about? I have. Yeah. So, I think I mentioned last episode that I'm trying to catch up on all of these TV shows all that of the all TV. dropped in one week. <laughs> um, and so I've been able to make some progress on two of them. Um, I was able to finish um, the, the third third season of The Great, and I was able to watch Ooh. a few episodes of Documentary Now. Um, so I, I will start with Documentary Now, I guess. Um, Documentary Now is definitely a show where it is a very specific type of humor made for a very specific type of brain. And that brain (laughs) happens to be my brain. (laughs) Um, I, this season is really, really good. It's just absolutely ridiculous. I can't believe how they come up with these concepts. John Mulaney and Seth Meyers wrote majority, if not all of the episodes this season. And they're just really wacky and, and, and weird um, again, we have Alexander Skarsgård doing a really totally divergent character from anything <laughs> he's ever done, playing this like old German man who's got this outrageous accent that is just so stupid. <laughs> and uh, yeah, it, and then Kate Blanchett returns for yet another fantastic episode of Documentary Now. She had an episode in season uh, three, or I forget what season we're on now, but the previous season she had a great episode and she's got another one this time around, which I didn't know she had. And I didn't even recognize her until she started talking. And I was like, that sounds like Kate Blanchett. I don't I even like, know oh if I knew gosh, Kate Blanchett that was on Documentary Now. Wow. Yeah, yeah. She was really great in the episode last season, and she was in this one as well. It was more of a minor role this season, but still, it it was amazing. Um, So yeah, anyway, I'm halfway through uh, the most recent season of Documentary Now. It's, if you're a Documentary Now fan, and you haven't already seen this season, it's, please go watch it. It's, it's just a lot of fun. It's incredibly stupid and silly and just weird, (laughs) but, but it's a wild ride that I enjoy every time, so um, just to say for people who don't know what documentary now is, I guess it's, um, it's a mockumentary television show where the show initially started out, uh, starring Bill Hader and Fred Armisen in every single episode. And they took actual documentaries that exist and they did their own like mockumentary ridiculous twist on them. But as time has gone on, Bill Hader is no longer really attached other than being a producer and Fred Armisen pops in every once in a while. But now they're kind of 
you know, they bring in these big stars to pretend to be someone else. And sometimes they still are doing mockumentaries of actual documentaries. And then some of them, they're just coming up with like from their ridiculous brains and saying, this would be a ridiculous idea for a documentary. Let's make it. Um, so yeah, but all of the characters in the documentaries take themselves very seriously. And it's just, it's, I love watching how much these characters in the stories think that their their lives are totally normal and, and really serious and really important. It's like, this is the, the weirdest or the dumbest thing ever. Um, but yeah, so that's the premise of Documentary Now. If you haven't seen the most recent season, go watch it. It's good. And if you haven't seen Documentary Now, I would recommend trying it out. Might not be your thing. Again, it's a very specific type of humor, but uh, it's worth trying. And it is an IFC production that is streaming on Netflix. Um, So yeah, and then to get into the great a little bit, I won't like take too long to talk about it because, you know, it's 10 hours. I also have some things to say about the great, so I'm very excited to hear. It's like 10 hours worth of of content. So um, Geneva will probably have to talk at more length about this (laughs) when we're not recording the podcast. But um, yeah, I'm very lukewarm on this season. Um, I think it started out interesting and then it really lost me in the middle. I was like, what is the point of any of this? I don't understand where this is going. Like, I'm intrigued by certain storylines, but cut out all the other ones because they, they're not important and they're not interesting to me. And then there was a, a very um, unexpected decision that they made at a certain point about three quarters of the way, th- just over halfway just through over the halfway season. Through. Mm-hmm. Yeah, maybe like, I won't say what episode it is, but um, yeah, something happens that kind of changes the course of the show. I like... I like the initial responses to that, but then I feel like it kind of like spitters out at the end and I'm kind of back in this place of, okay, I don't know if I'm really interested enough to come back to this. So I, I have very mixed feelings on it. Um, and to be quite honest, I'm not, I I don't, I'm not always this person, but with this show in particular, it really, really bothers me how much sex is in it. It's really unnecessary and it gets to a point when it's just like this is ridiculous and you can't just it feels like a cheap joke of just like someone's trying to be funny so let's put a poop joke in it's like poop jokes can be funny not if you do them 50 million times but they're like no but it's poop so it's funny not this show but just that as an example whereas I feel like this is something where it's like oh let's like put a weird sex thing in here because sex is funny I'm like I it's not inherently funny to like, I just, there is so much nudity and so much sex in this season that I'm like, it it really turned me off a lot. Um, More so than the previous seasons. I feel like it was. And also Hmm. the, the ratio of male to female nudity is really disturbing to me. Um, They're like, it's probably 99% naked women. And I don't, it just bothers me. Yeah. So I mean, that's that's a lot of media, unfortunately. Yeah, I yeah. just for for me, it was irritating because I can I I don't mind if there's sex in TV shows if it's actually benefiting and propelling the story and and developing the characters. And I feel like this was just like, let's just put a sex scene in there for no reason. I'm like, okay, why? Um, 
so yeah, I don't know. I just felt like it, it lacked a little bit of creativity and it was relying on a lot of tropes in order to propel the story forward. And then it took a risk and I was like, okay, cool. And then I was like, okay, so I guess we're going in this direction now. So overall, I don't regret watching it. It was fine. Uh, but I was not like, it, I did not mm. enjoy it from start to finish. And I will... I will start out season four. I'm I'm willing to give season four a chance, but if it doesn't grip me, I I probably won't keep watching the yeah, great. That's so, really yeah. interesting because I had almost the entire entirely <laughs> different reaction from you. I really that love this never season. Never happens for us. Geneva. I know <laughs> we're such similar people. <laughs> I really love this season. This might. I mean, I mainline the first two seasons. You know, probably. Actually, not even that long ago, maybe six months ago now. They're getting, they they run together in my mind a little bit Mm -hmm. um, because I watch them so close together. But I, this might actually be my favorite season. I think the risks, the narrative risks that it takes, for me, they're surprising. And I can definitely see why they would turn some people off. But for me, they really pay off in terms of the new avenues that they open up for the characters. For me, the first part of the season is where it is a little bit samey because mm-hmm. you kind of have the same things happening to the characters. And with the change in the story that they take around halfway through the season, it just it allows for this really, really different ideas to be explored, really different um, sort of sets of decision making that the characters have to face, ways for them to grow and change in unexpected ways. Um, I found some really, I thought there were some really interesting themes um, in the second half that don't want to get too spoilery, but that were explored in terms of um, kind of just the the idea of leadership and um, balancing trying to do the right thing for the people with um, ideas of control, destiny, um, mob did i choose the word destiny or was it actually my destiny when did i say that does it matter (laughs) yeah uh, yeah anyway and i just i mean for me too one of the things that i really love about the show is the secondary characters and the decisions they make in the second half of the show allow a lot of the secondary characters to really shine in ways that they hadn't gotten to shine before i'm very intrigued um yeah I really loved it. I really loved the season of The Great. And honestly, I don't know whether they're going to do a season four, especially because Elle Fanning and Nicholas Holt are becoming more and more famous and in demand as actors. But if they watch, if they do, I will be watching. I will be sat. I'm very excited. I would really the, love to see be, where the story goes from there. They'll be making a season four. They'll be making a season four. I There's hope no so. Because I'm also, I feel like this show, this season for some reason has not been promoted as much as the previous two seasons were. And I don't know if it's just my imagination, but it feels like they just basically dropped this season out of nowhere with almost mm. no buildup. There's not been a whole lot of chatter that I've seen online. Um, the trailer was only released like a couple weeks before the season dropped. There wasn't a whole lot of promotion that I was seeing. So I'm not sure what's going on. Nicholas at- Holt was out promoting his Nicholas Cage vampire <laughs> movie. Yeah, maybe that's it. Come on. You could do two things at once. Nicholas Cage paid him more money. <laughs> <laughs> the two Nikolai. Yes. Um, so anyway, yeah. So if you're on the you fence, have to, give it you a watch. and I have to talk about it off the air because yeah, I would to. like to have a spoiler conversation with you about a lot of things. Yeah, I'd love to. Yeah. Yeah. Anyway. I think that, we can all agree, though. Can we at least agree? 
Maxim is mask Maxim mask. Oh my gosh, Maxim! <laughs> I'm glad they gave him more to do this season. Oh my he gosh, really absolute shining star MVP of that season. Yeah, yeah. There's it. yes, he was great, yeah. and also like he trying so hard to like assert himself as this person, and then he makes like the stupidest <laughs> mistake out of the whole. Because he's a literal ten year old child. <laughs> yeah, oh, it's so good. Ugh, All right. Anyway. The only other thing of note that I've seen recently is I went to see Blackberry in theaters, which is the, um, it's a sort of tech um, business story in the vein of, you know, the social network or um, air, <laughs> Tetris, things like that, you know, the, the story of a company. Um, and so it's about the Blackberry, you know, the, the uh, portable, I guess, cell phone texting email device that was pre-iPhone that had a chokehold on that, everybody. In the, you say that you know, as if you've never seen a BlackBerry. <laughs> I was... I Have you never seen a BlackBerry? I did not get my first cell phone until high school. I But your parents didn't have Blackberries? No, my no parents didn't have Blackberries? No one no. you knew had a BlackBerry. Who were we? Michael... Both of my parents had Blackberries and like everyone I knew had a BlackBerry. <laughs> no. At least all the adults did. No, that was for rich people. No, what? we didn't have blackberries. <laughs> Are, I mean, is it? I don't know. I don't know. Yeah. Wow. This is now my I'm perception. Like, I... I'm like, am I a privileged? Like, <laughs> I mean, obviously, as Americans, we're all privileged in certain ways. But I'm like, does that make me a rich person? Well, my okay. Parents had blackberries. For... Like, I don't think so. Rich I'm pretty people... sure we weren't like super rich. Okay. For perspective, my dad only recently got a smartphone within the last year my mom does not have a smartphone so this is the level of um like okay cellular technology we're talking about with my parents i just think it's so funny that you're like so apparently this thing called the blackberry <laughs> that like blah, blah. i'm like you mean the phone I know what that a every adult was. had for like three years i never in like row? encountered one like while i was a child that was for like business people Anyway. I used to play games on my dad's Blackberry. There was like the little snake game where it would like chase after its own tail. And oh, yeah. To... Yeah. I anyway. That. Um, <clears throat> not on a Blackberry, though. Anyway. <laughs> <laughs> I love it when Tatum and I like discover what different childhoods Wait, we yeah. had sometimes. We had very different childhoods, but yeah. it's great. It's great. Yeah. Anyway, um, movie pretty good, I would say. Um, I haven't seen a huge amount of these types of um stories i wouldn't say it's kind of my go-to genre or anything like that obviously anything is going to pale in comparison with the social network which is just mm. one of the best movies the last 20 years about technology and its effect on society but yeah. i would say it's blackberry is a pretty good movie very good performances glenn howerton in particular is really phenomenal in it um there's a lot of just kind of interesting character stuff about the way that you know I mean, it's a tale as old as time, but the way that wealth and fame corrupts the soul and tempts you to compromise your values. But it's done very well. And if you have any interest in this time period, in the idea of technology, in the idea of kind of, um, you know, new emerging forms of tech building people up and then changing so quickly and allowing, causing other people to get lost in the dust. Yeah, it's just kind of interesting. So I would recommend. Yeah, I had never heard of it before you said well the movie not the poem. <laughs> clearly you'd heard of a blackberry apparently you guys are just swimming in blackberries oh yeah you know just drowning in them <laughs> um but yeah i'd never heard of the movie so i'll have to go go look it up yeah 
Yeah. Yeah. All right. Well, why don't we move on over to our movie for the day? Laura. Laura. Not Lara. Laura. Yeah. As my, I had an ex coworker who um, I mistakenly pronounced her name Laura, and she's like, it's not Lara. It's Laura. Yeah. <laughs> yep. Yep. I, I always, sorry, this is like a short tangent, but, mm. uh, I love how Laura is said in Spanish. Like when I was, mm. when I was living in Spain, my, my best Spanish friend that I made there, I just loved being able to say Laura all the time. Oh, that is pretty. Laura. Laura. Yeah. It Shout out like to Laura. Laura. <laughs> <laughs> She's definitely not listening to this podcast, but if she ever does, <laughs> shout, shout out, out to, to Laura. You, Laura. Yeah, yeah. It makes it sound like a flower. Yeah. It's beautiful. Yeah, anyway. Very beautiful. Anyway. Also beautiful. Laura, yes. a.k.a. Laura. Um, yes. yes. So today on the show, we are discussing the 1944 film Laura, which is a film noir directed by Otto Preminger, starring Jean Tierney, Dana Andrews, Clifton Webb, and a very young, well, young and kind of handsome Vincent Price. The movie opens with a murder mystery. Laura Hunt, beautiful, successful, enigmatic, has been shot to death in her apartment. We follow the detective assigned to her case, Mark McPherson, as he interviews her friends. Waldo Lidecker, who is a witty, self-absorbed newspaper columnist who credits himself with Laura's professional success. Shelby Carpenter, the charming but lazy rake that may or may not have been engaged to Laura. And Anne Treadwell, Laura's aunt, who was herself in love with Shelby. As he digs deeper and deeper into her life, Laura begins to cast a spell over McPherson, and he soon finds himself falling in love with a dead woman. Or is she? Halfway through the film, we learn that Laura is actually alive, and the murder victim is in fact the woman that Shelby, her fiancé, had been having an affair with. Now McPherson must untangle an ever more complicated web and discover whether Laura herself, the woman at the center of everything, might be a killer. Thank you. <laughs> Can you tell I'm excited about, to talk about this movie? Yeah, yeah, I, I love it. Also, I was not aware that uh, the character of Anne Treadville was... Laura's aunt. See, I had no idea who she was the whole movie. <laughs> I thought she was the the model who was kill, killed because she kind of looked like her. And then I was like, wait, what? but she's not dead. So who are you? No, I don't she's know like who you 20 are. years older than Diane Redford. But they looked the same to me. Bro. I was like, I don't know who you are. You just show up sometimes and you say things. Data like, has 1940s blindness where every person in a 1940s movie looks the same. I mean, they all talk the same and, you know, their clothes are similar and <laughs> the lighting is, it's, it's hard to, to yeah. Well, it's, a, I, I'm, I have the benefit of having seen Rebecca many times and Judith Anderson, who plays Anne Treadwell, is Mrs. Danvers, the sort of villain of Rebecca. She is fantastic in that movie. Um, so I was already familiar with her face before I saw this movie. Also... Mm -hmm. Please have grace for me. This movie is hard to understand. <laughs> like, you've I, seen this before. I This is my first time watching it, and I was like, I was not expecting I was on? going to have to use my brain mm -hmm. this much. And I was like, I feel like I almost need to start it over with the expectation of, mm -hmm. like, concentrating. But it's too late, because I'm already 30 minutes in, and I'm not okay, going to start so it over. The thing about, I've found about a lot of film noir is... 
just let it sweep over you. You don't actually have to try and follow <laughs> the mystery. You can if you want to. I will be honest. I have seen this movie probably a dozen times or more. This is this is just a comfort movie for me. I will just put it on at random times when I maybe I'm folding laundry, maybe I'm down and I need to watch something familiar, and I will just rewatch it because I love it so much. Watching it this time while taking notes... I was discovering <laughs> plot points that I had never noticed before, <laughs> like major shifts in the character's uh, decision making. I was like, oh, wait, OK, that makes sense. So, you know what? Yeah. You can enjoy something for the vibes. You don't necessarily have to understand exactly what's going on. Yeah. So, again, like, it's not my fault that I didn't know that she was <laughs> her aunt. Your fault. I'm sorry. <laughs> Random question. Have you ever seen The Big Sleep with Humphrey Bogart, Lauren Bacall? Ooh, have I? Because that movie is famously almost impossible to follow. I don't think I've seen okay. that movie, no. To the point that, like, I believe at one point during production, the director called up Raymond Chandler, who had written the original book that it's based on, and was like, okay, wait, can you please explain to me, like, I'm five, who it was that murdered this character who gets murdered in the scene? And Raymond Chandler was like, I have no idea. <laughs> <laughs> wow, okay. So, anyway. Yeah, not not unprecedented for movies of this time to just make no sense. Although this movie actually does make sense. I it doesn't say. make no sense. There's just, just a lot of details yeah, that are added you gotta, in. You have to think about it a little bit. Yeah. Yeah. Anyway, anyway sorry. Continue yeah, with no your... Yeah, no worries. So yeah. Laura, the story of Laura, is adapted from a novel by Vera Caspery. Although Otto Preminger was involved from the start as a producer, originally there was another director named Ruben Mamoulian who was hired to oversee the shoot. I do not know if I'm producing that, uh, pronouncing that name correctly. So if any relatives of his are listening, I apologize. <laughs> <laughs> so they began shooting the movie, but the first two weeks worth of dailies proved to be disappointing. And so Preminger went to head of 20th Century Fox, Daryl of Zanuck, and convinced him to fire Mamoulian and install him as director instead. Preminger threw out everything that the original director had done, started Whoa. over with wow. a new a more subtle, thoughtful approach. Um, one little tidbit that I read in a couple places, which I thought was funny, is so the, in this movie, a very prominent prop is a portrait of Laura that hangs over the mantelpiece. The original, when they were originally It's not a prop, movie, it's a piece of set dressing. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you for the correction. You're welcome. A very important piece of set dressing, which is a portrait <laughs> of Laura. So originally, the portrait that was used was painted by the wife of the director oh, wow. of Mamoulian. However, hmm. when Preminger threw everything out, he threw out that portrait as well. What? <laughs> Wow. So what he ended up doing was he just took a photo of Gene Tierney, like he got a like a you know a professional uh, photographer to take a photo of her, enlarged it, and then had someone paint over it with oil paints to make it look like a painting, and that's the portrait wow. that is used in the movie. And honestly, I think it looks great. You know, whatever he did, it looks it looks convincing to me as a sort of society portrait of the time. Anyway, wow, that's a lot of drama. Yeah, that's, that's, there's a lot of drama. Wow. Apparently, once it the production sounds like mm -hmm. a lot of petty drama too. Well, here's the thing. <laughs> From what I've read, it's not like it was Preminger just coming in and being like, "I want to do this." Like Zanuck looked at what Mamoulian was doing, and was like, "No, this is not working at all. Like these performances are not calibrated right. These the the tone is not right. It, everything's kind of too over the top. Everything's too certain people are too hysterical. Some people are too wooden. 
it just it's not working. And so when Preminger came in, what he did was he was able to take kind of a more restrained approach. It's a little more thoughtful, a little more subtle. And he ended up really elevating, elevating the material that was there. And the film ended up being this really big hit. Uh, It was a box office hit. It won, uh, had a lot of Oscar nominations. And it launched Preminger's career as a director. He directed a few things before, but this really put him on the map. And Preminger, I mean, is a huge name. Like there's a lot of, you know, really classic movies he's directed. Um, Anatomy of a Murder is one that I um, I really love and is a really landmark film. Um, <clears throat> so anyway, yeah, Laura is now regarded as an all-time classic of film noir, and it has this really intriguing premise that has been readapted and reimagined many different times throughout radio, film, television, you name it. This idea of the dead woman or, you know, the murder victim at the center of of everything and the detective falling in love with the person whose murder he's trying to investigate is just, it's a great premise, you know? So, yeah, that's Laura. All right, so Tatum, um, this movie, um, I discovered this movie. It was screened actually at a um, an independent cinema in the town where I was living, um, I think the year after college. And so I saw it on the big screen for the very first time. I was absolutely entranced by it. Um, I loved everything about it. I loved the vibe. I loved the chemistry between the lead actors, um, the music, the set design. And like I said, I've now seen this movie dozens of times. It's just such a comfort movie for me. Um, I just, I I mean, as you know, I love the 1940s. I love, it's such a... um, you know, it, it's such a, a comfort time. The, the the movies that were made at that time, the idea of film noir and how dark um, everything is, the, the people in beautiful costumes standing in rooms and talking to each other. It's just, oh, I love it so much. So um, I'm assuming that this is your first time ever seeing the movie. So what are your sort of initial thoughts, apart from obvious confusion over what happened? <laughs> Yeah, definitely a lot of confusion on my part, um, and I will own that. Yeah, so I <clears throat> I had never seen this movie before. Um, I had heard of it, and it had been on my list, I think, for quite some time, um, because film noir is something where I never really, like, I didn't grow up watching film noir, and I know it's kind of its own little genre, and so as I've gotten more into film and cinema, as I've gotten older, I'm like, I need to start watching more of these classic film noirs. So I've only seen a few of them. And this was kind of another one that I was like, I would like to get around to it at some point, but just never did. Um, so yeah, I, I was telling Geneva a little bit before we got on the air that this movie, I, I'm not, I'm not entirely sure how I feel about it um, because there's certain aspects that I really, really like. I think... I was not expecting the idea, like that twist that happens, you know, about 35, 40 minutes in, into it. Um, so that really intrigued me a lot. Uh, but kind of what was happening before then, I wasn't entirely interested in because I was like, okay, a murder. We're trying to solve a murder, going around, asking questions. Okay. But then when we had that twist, I was like, oh, all right, now I'm into this. And I liked how they had kind of weaved in these stories of like Waldo and his creepy relationship with, <laughs> with Laura that she 
for some reason doesn't see as creepy from the very beginning, which I don't know what that says about her. But um, so I liked how it kind of brought him around. In the beginning, my initial impression of him was like, this guy's really creepy. I don't like him. And then as time went on, I was like, you're really controlling. This makes me uncomfortable. And then it got to a point where I was like, oh, but he's kind of nice and seems upset that she's dead and all of these things. So maybe he's a good guy. And then so, I, yeah, I just like went on a journey with him. And then by the end, I was like, no, I knew you sucked. I should have <laughs> stuck with my gut. Um, so, yeah, I, I find a lot of the characters here to be interesting, some more interesting than others. Um, unfortunately, I am underwhelmed by several of the acting performances by the protagonists of this story. Um, there's a few that I like, but a lot of them I'm like, this feels very bland to me. But I also think that that's just because this isn't necessarily the style of acting that I am particularly drawn to. Um, so yeah, I don't know. I, I have mixed feelings about it. I'm glad I watched it. There's things that I really, really liked that I felt like were unique to this story that I haven't seen in other things. But then at the same time, there were moments where I was like, okay, this I feel like this is dragging. I feel like this doesn't, this just feels a little slow to me. Um, so yeah, I guess I'm kind of in the middle on it, but not because I feel middle about it, but because I feel very positively about certain things and then a little bit more negatively about other things. So it balances out as opposed to the apartment where I'm like, I have no feelings at all. Therefore I'm in the middle. This is like, I have feelings. They just balance out to to be like that. So yeah, those are kind of my overall thoughts. I am glad I watched it though. Good, good. Yeah, I'm glad. I will say your, your feedback about some of the like the lead characters performances is not unique in the sense that I've seen that from other reviews both of the time and and reviews from years later and those performances work for me but I definitely see where that criticism is coming Um, and I think that actually ties into one of you know this is one of those movies where I'm like it's perfect but also it's very flawed (laughs) like and Mm, I for me the biggest flaw of this movie is in a, a really interesting way. So there's there's a piece of trivia that I came across as I was doing, you know, a little read up on trivia about this movie for this episode, which is that when he was adapting the um, original story, the original novel by Vera Caspery into a film, Preminger became really, really interested in the character of Waldo Lidecker, and he considered him to be the most interesting character in the story, which... I mean, I think he is absolutely in my opinion. Yeah, in the film, yeah, absolutely. But in expanding his role, he changed, sort of changed what I think the original intention of Vera Casper mm. had been, which is that Laura should okay. be the most interesting character in it because she's yeah. the one that everyone revolves around, and she's very unique. Well, I won't say she's unique, but you know, she is a bit exceptional for that time in that she is this successful, independent woman who has had multiple sexual relationships and is never ashamed for it. You know, she is, um, she's strong and she's, um, she's independent. She's also very kind and she's a great friend to those around her. And, um, she is ultimately a really, a a good person. And, um, even though she gets caught up in this this murder mystery, it's not really of her. It's due to some poor decision making on her in her romantic life, but it's not something that she's being shamed for. It's you know, it's not 
it's not sort of moralistic in the way that things in the 1940s could sometimes be. And I think there's a lot of, there's a lot of really, you know, that makes her a really interesting character in the context of the 1940s. And I think when the book then gets adapted into the film and the character of Otto Otto, Waldo Lidecker gets expanded, Laura's character is kind of cut back. And for me, the one big flaw of this film is that we see so much of Laura through the eyes of the men in her life Mm -hmm. and not Mm -hmm. as her own person. So in the entire first part of the movie, we're only seeing her through uh, Waldo's eyes. You know, we're seeing Mm -hmm. her as Waldo is describing her. And she does come off as kind of, you know, I mean, she's a little bit, um, you know, you see the the sort of um, spark that he sees in her and why he's attracted to her. But she also has this sort of, you know, compliancy to her, which is how he wants her. You know, he wants her to be kind of successful and admired by everyone, but his own personal possession, his own personal toy, his sort of, um, you know, his Pygmalion that he has molded and only answers to him. And that's not who Laura is, but we don't get very much of a chance to actually see who Laura is, even though she comes back halfway through and we are interacting with her in the the second half. We're mostly seeing her in the context of the actual murder investigation. We don't get a huge chance to see who she is apart from that. And I think the person who does have the best chance to see who she really is, is Mark, because Mark is the one who's digging into her life, who's you know, reading her private diary and her letters, you know, not realizing that she's actually alive, you know, it's just part of his investigation. And so I think he does have a chance to see her as a more well-rounded person. And because of that, I I think there is something to their relationship. I I really, really like their relationship. But the audience does not actually get a chance to see much of who Laura is. And so I think that's just kind of the one fundamental flaw about this film. I do, I absolutely love this film. But I do wish there had just been a little more care taken to who Laura is and trying to build her in contrast to the Laura that is presented by the male characters. Yeah, I I would very much so agree with that. I think I think I was confused watching the film because the movie is literally the title of it is Laura. And it was odd to me that she's such a such a praised character and yet I felt like I didn't know anything about who she was I felt like she was talked about Mm -hmm. by other people as opposed to an actual person that lived that I could really like understand and and you know just get to know them really and I felt like for me and I'm sorry if this is like heresy but for me I was watching the movie and I was like this feels like a Lorelai Mrs. Maisel, Midge Maisel type of character in terms of like every every man who comes in contact with her is oh, immediately okay. like immediately smitten mm-hmm. and is like I'm falling in love with you. You're amazing. You're beautiful. You're smart. You're clever. You're witty. You're funny. All of these things. And I'm like everyone is saying this, but I don't actually see the substance that motivates all of this like infatuation from literally every single man that she comes in contact with. And so I I just that fell a little bit flat for me in in the sense of like 
you know, I, I do agree that Waldo is the most interesting character here, but then I wish that then let's go all the way into Waldo and like not try and force a Laura story into what seems to be wanting to be his story. I just felt like there was a lot of tension there in terms of what is this movie trying to say? Like, are we supposed to care about Laura? Are we supposed to care about Waldo? Like, are we supposed to care about both? Um, So yeah, it just like, there's this whole idea of Mark falling in love with her and not knowing who she is. And I'm like, but we don't really ever see like, I felt like we didn't really see anything that would lead to him loving her. Like we didn't like, yes, we see him holding her diary or we see him holding her letters or whatever, but we don't, I just felt like there wasn't enough. There wasn't enough evidence there of him really getting to know her in such a way that would justify him falling in love with her. So I don't know. I, yeah, for me, I think that similar to what you were saying, like, I do think for me that was the biggest flaw in this movie because I feel like it's such an essential part of the story. And the fact that for me that didn't connect, it was harder for me to be invested in what was going on. Hmm. Um, See, I, I don't have any issue with the idea of all of the characters falling in love with Laura, in particular with Mark falling in love with Laura. I don't Laura. either, if I, I see the reason behind it. Like, I don't hmm. mind everyone falling in love with her being like, oh my gosh, she's amazing. I'm just like, but show me, show me why. Because she's, she's just an avatar walking around. Like, I don't understand the well, motivation behind why this is happening. In the first half, that's all she is. And for me, it's the, the film language and the casting of Jean Tierney do enough to make up for it. Because Jean Tierney is just, oh my goodness, one of the most stunningly gorgeous people I think has ever walked this planet. She is so beautiful. Cannot say that she's the greatest of actresses, but she is so incredibly gorgeous. And the the way that Otto Preminger is able to use the, the setting of her apartment with that huge, gorgeous photo looming over the... Um, uh, over the entire living room and um, that scene where Mark is walking through her apartment at late at night and he's he's opening her closets and he's sniffing her perfume and he's holding her letters you just feel like her essence is there like her ghost is hmm. there and for me it really works in the sense that maybe it's not the actual person you know he's definitely falling in love with this idea of who Laura is that will mm-hmm. then you know, have to change a little bit when the actual lore appears on the scene. But I think that the film does a really effective job of creating this sort of, you know, very noirish idea of ghosts hiding in the corners of these rooms that these people inhabit and um, sort of impressions and and ideas having this really oppressive effect on people and, and changing them and altering their decision making. I think it works really well. I love that particular scene. Um, I struggle. I I really, really like Dana Ad- Andrews as an actor and other things I've seen him in. And in this as well, I do think he can be a little bit wooden, wooden sometimes, although it does work for the character ultimately. But I really love that I scene. I did not like his performance at all. I, uh, I, we'll I couldn't stand it. <laughs> we'll have to disagree He wasn't the worst, but he definitely was not my favorite. He felt like one of the weaker ones to me. We'll have to disagree on this, but I really like him in this scene where he's just sort of, you know, very wordlessly and stoically, but you can see that he's kind of coming unglued in a certain way. Um, 
Yeah, and the music throughout the scene too. I mean, we just we have to to rant about how good the score is because the score. Yeah, is the, so the good. score is what impressed me the most about this movie. I thought the score was super well done. Even that moment when, um, gosh, who is it? Is it Laura? No, maybe it's Waldo. I don't remember who it is and, and who did this, but there's mm. a sequence in the movie where someone again. I'm confused. There's a lot of things happening. So I'm going to talk about this in very vague terms. Maybe you can put the pieces together when I'm done. But there's a sequence in this movie where someone is walking through some apartment somewhere (laughs) (laughs) and it's kind of dark. And each time they open a door, there's kind of like this tense noise, like what's going to be behind the door when they turn the light on and then it's fine. And they go to the next room and then they turn another light on. It's the tense music again. And then after they've turned all the lights on in the apartment, they continue walking around and the and the music totally changes because now we know the place is safe and there's no one there. Mm-hmm. And, and I just thought that was really cool how the score, like it never, it never cut and went silent. It was just this long continuation of just like this progression of strings that just somehow transformed the tone all within one sequence and I was like wow this is this is a really I mean it's definitely a 1940s score but Mm -hmm. like it's I I found it to be very well done very well done I I think the score was my favorite part of this movie yeah yeah I mean the Laura Suite the 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 main theme of the movie I I have it on my film scores playlist I listened to it all the time it was a big hit at the time apparently it was later set to words and became a hit on its own um as kind of a jazz single but yeah it's it's so gorgeous and so atmospheric yeah yeah um the uh, I mean this movie looks gorgeous I mean we'll, we'll talk a little bit about the awards that it won but you know the the cinematography the way that the um Preminger uses these kind of low, um, slow panning shots and this really fluid movements is really beautiful to navigate the space, um, the way that the sets are decorated. I love the, you know, again, with this being a comfort movie for me, I find this really intriguing that this movie came out in 1944, you know, during World War II, and it's so separated from anything involving the idea of not just the war but I was gonna say World War II pretty comforting for you huh (laughs) yeah (laughs) it's so no it's the the opposite it's so insulated from is that the word um it's so sealed off from anything involving the wider world from anything involving kind of um the war or politics or you know even just deprivation you know struggles um i mean this is just it's very much a movie that's set within this very small very cloistered sort of manhattan elite and they all stand around in these beautifully decorated rooms and they talk to each other and i just find it very cozy (laughs) i i wanted to mention because you you brought up before um kind of it seemed like this is kind of what you were saying but how Mm -hmm. you could see how these men are falling in love with Laura because she's so beautiful right like she's one of the most beautiful people that you've ever seen Mm -hmm. like that's in in your opinion and for me I think and I'm aware that this is me kind of being maybe like a little bit of, of a jerk I don't know not not a jerk but like Me being like, well, in the 21st century, blah, 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 blah. (laughs) But like, Uh and obviously this movie was made in a different time and and I respect that. But 
there are certain things for me where I don't know if this is necessarily a modern day thing. I think it's just for me, the way that I, the types of romances that I'm able to connect to versus not connect to are very different from, Mm -hmm. (laughs) from a lot of people. And for me, there was a lot of messaging here that I did not particularly enjoy. Like I was kind of angry of like, it's movies like this that perpetuate these types of romantic fantasies that don't actually exist. And it's harmful to people like blah, blah, blah. Interesting. But I, I just, I didn't, I didn't like this concept of just, you know, I, I met this woman and she, you know, the reason that I'm interested in her is because she's hard to get or because she's like putting me in my place and she's speaking up and like, Blah, blah, she's challenging me and that's why I'm initially drawn to her and I'm like mm-hmm. I, I feel like there's this narrative that's continued to today of like oh well you gotta play hard to get like don't be you know that's what really pulls the guys in or whatever and I'm like screw that message I hate it it's also not accurate like 95% of the time but then there's also messages in terms of like oh well just because she's so beautiful that's what makes her attractive and I I agree we it it is shown in the beginning that like she is very smart and she's kind of she it almost looks like she's an art director maybe of Mm -hmm. um like some sort of ad executive yeah so clearly she's very intelligent and she's very capable but that's something that's kind of just briefly mentioned in the beginning and I don't see that as a reason why people are falling in love with her later on like Shelby kind of meets her and is like, oh, well, I'm intrigued because you're beautiful and you are just making me, I just can't stop thinking about you because blah, blah, blah. And I'm like, okay. Oh, interesting. I, I don't read their I just, relationship that way at all. Yeah, I guess I, I guess just for me, I'm very, I'm very critical when it comes to how romance is portrayed in films because I think that it, the, like the messages can be very harmful and very toxic in terms of how they continue on and for people who watch them and, and how that trains them to expect them to be treated or how it makes them want to be treated or, or mm-hmm. whatever. And I'm not saying that that's necessarily what this movie does, but for me, it triggered certain ideas of like, I don't, these, this is the type of stuff that I don't like. I don't like these types of, this isn't romantic. This is just, this is just, I don't, it's, I don't know. It, it just, it doesn't mm-hmm. feel romantic to me, those types of things. So, um, but anyway, so th- those were things I just felt like because a major part of the story is Laura being this person that everyone's falling in love with. Mm-hmm. I was like, well, I have issues with why they're falling in love with her. So, well, I mean, that's- the movie also has issues with the, the way that her relationships are playing out. I mean, the whole idea behind the movie and the thing that I really connect with it is the idea that Waldo is obsessed with this Laura who he has created in his mind. This Laura who is mm-hmm. beautiful and is perfectly moldable into this, you know, impossibly pure, perfect society woman who is cultured and intelligent and successful and loved by everyone, but only chooses to love him. Like this is this this version of Laura that he's tried to mold into his ideal woman. And anytime she did strays from that you know anytime she actually shows like oh I'm a normal woman with like normal human like urges and I like a guy who's hot and I like a guy who's closer to my age he can't stand it and he has to interfere and he has to step in and do something about it 
But that's that's my issue with it, though. Like going back to what we were saying before, I agree with you. I think that's a really powerful statement. But because for me, the movie is not told enough from Laura's perspective, Mm -hmm. I don't I don't get that narrative in terms of her taking agency and her going in this direction. Like, I don't see it as something where we're really diving into an empowering story for Laura. I see it more so as like a predatory story about Waldo. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? Like, because we don't for me anyway. Because we don't get enough Laura and we don't see it from her perspective. I think there's a lot of potential there for it to be a very like feminist empowering type of story. Mm -hmm. And I wish it had been more of that. I mean, because so much of this is seeing it through the lens of other men. mm -hmm. It was harder for me to like really, really feel like that was the narrative that was actually being told. It felt like something in the background. No, I agree with you. It's it's very much under the surface and it's between the lines and you have to mm-hmm. you have to pay attention you have to think about it you know and like i said i was confused yeah. so. <laughs> there's a and lot I have of things i didn't pick many up times on and thought very hard about it um yeah. yeah i i agree i wish it was a little bit more on the surface but that being said all of the ingredients are there for me and mm-hmm. even mm-hmm. though i wish it was more on the surface the fact that those ingredients are there um yeah if you dig at them I really really like um yeah the the sh- uh, relationship with Shelby I find kind of intriguing in the sense that I don't know maybe it's just me but I get the vibe that you know he's attracted to her because she's beautiful certainly but he also really likes the fact that she's this independent successful woman and she's more successful than he is she makes more money she's literally his boss he hires <laughs> she hires him um after he asks her to and I think he kind of likes that. I think there's something in mm-hmm. that dynamic where he really enjoys being the person who, um, where she's kind of the dominant force in that relationship, which I find kind mm-hmm. of interesting. Mm-hmm. I, sorry, not to kind of just like not fully engage with no, what go you ahead. just said, but you, <laughs> you, brought it, you brought him up and I'm like, oh, we have to talk about this. Can we please talk about Shelby's suit? <laughs> what about it's Shelby's like, suit? His gigantic the suit? suit? The suit that he wears, the first time we see him, I was like, you look like, I, I don't, I don't even know. I was like, <laughs> you look like a human body that goes on forever. <laughs> Vincent Price, you, a very tall man, it turns out. But the suit did not help. Like he's standing next to he's standing next to Waldo, who's like, yeah, he's shorter than him, but not like a foot and a half shorter. But even like all of the other because I watched the movie and I was like, okay, maybe this is a 1944 style that all the men were wearing. None of the other men have a suit jacket that is that long. And I'm like, this is such a weird choice because he's already the tallest person Mm -hmm. in this movie. And this suit is so over large. Well, He's swimming in it. Men, it's so the proportions. Like, it's ridiculous. The proportions in men's suits in the 1940s in general. Did you catch the um, the part where I think it might be at the beginning when uh, Waldo's getting gets out of the bathtub and he's getting dressed, and you see him. You know, he's in his pants. He's got a shirt. He's he hasn't put on a shirt jacket yet. His pants mm-hmm. come up to his nipples. Like it is ridiculous. Oh yes. How oh, long yes. His pants are. <laughs> 
<laughs> it's amazing. Oh, man. Yeah. Sometimes we think about, you know, like, oh, man, if I men could only go back to the, like, tailored cultured styles of the 1940s. I'm like, I don't disagree. But also, have you seen some of the way these clothing was And tailored? sometimes when those really high pants are paired with the really short the really ties, short you know ties. what I'm talking yep, about? Exactly. It just, <laughs> it looks so funny. I don't know if you've ever seen um, those, uh, like, the SNL sketches that they did, if like, gosh, a while back mm-hmm. where Bill Hader does his Clint Eastwood impression for the Chrysler commercials. Have you seen those? Uh, that doesn't sound familiar. Oh, they are. I will send them okay. to you after this, but they are one of my favorite SNL sketches to ever exist. Love Bill Hader. His impression of Clint Bill Eastwood Hader, is amazing. But it's it's making fun of these Super Bowl commercials that Clint Eastwood did throughout the <laughs> like every commercial break at the Super Bowl. He uh-huh. did a different version of a Chrysler commercial. <laughs> and so Bill Hader throughout like an entire episode of SNL, they do all these different Chrysler commercials of him doing a Clint Eastwood impression, making fun of the commercial. Uh-huh. But anyway, there is one that I will send to you that let's just say it plays with the height <laughs> of men's pants. I'm and already picturing it in my mind. Incredible. And incredible. <laughs> it's, it's one of my favorite bits of all time on SNL. Oh but goodness. anyway, while we're talking about costuming, um, I'm slightly yeah. obsessed with the look that Anne Treadwell wears the first time they visit her in this, um, in her apartment to interview her. You probably will not remember this. I don't know why it sticks in my brain. But she's wearing like this nice sort of dark cocktail dress. Well, I didn't even know who she was. Yeah, so well, I was like, oh, that's her She's aunt, the right? older woman who is in love with Shelby and wants to she be She doesn't look old mama. to me. Well, yeah, good. I mean, she she's not very old. She's just clearly older yeah, she, than Laura. I guess, yeah. yeah. Anyway, I just couldn't figure out who she was. I was like, is she Shelby's yeah. like? Well, the weird thing sister? is too. They refer is she his assistant. They refer to her know. a couple times as Laura's aunt, but in no other way do they refer to the idea of like Laura having family or like them having any connection apart from both being in love with Shelby. And I'm just, I'm very intrigued by why they. Yeah, what's going what's on? The, here? Why, why the family <laughs> relationship? Why are they not just like society acquaintances? Anyway. Um, anyway, sorry. Yeah, sorry. So when they first arrive, she's wearing this like nice cocktail dress, but then she has this, um, this like silk scarf that is wrapped around her waist. And when I say wrapped around her waist, I mean, it is like, like the full, just the two corners are tied together as if it's an apron, but the knot is in the front. So there's an opening in the front and it's just kind of like an apron for the entire back of her like legs and I'm just I'm very confused about like what that was for because it's just you have a dress and then you tie a scarf over it and make it like a second skirt but it's not a skirt because it has an opening (laughs) I I don't know why I'm confused about this I feel like they do something very similar in the best years of our lives and so I've just been like is that a thing in the 1940s I guess you just had a nice scarf and you tied it over your dress Maybe. Right. I mean, I do that with, with jackets. Like, if I take a jacket off, I'll tie it around my waist. People make fun of me all the time. They're like, that's a 90s thing. I'm like, I don't care. It's practical. I'm hot, and I don't have anywhere to put my jacket, <laughs> so I'm going to tie it around my waist. Maybe that's it. They just they didn't want to carry around their scarf in any other way. They just had to tie it around their waist. I guess. Right, well, yeah. Learn something new every day. Yeah. Yeah. Anyway. I There was one... Uh, I will just say, I, I know that this is like... For you, your favorite era of fashion. Mm -hmm. For me, it's not particularly like I admire, like there are definitely certain looks from this time that I do really like, but overall there are sometimes things that I'm just like, 
I I don't I don't get it. Um, but there was one particular. Um, I, I think you, I, I can't think of what to call it. I feel like I have to call it a suit jacket, but like a suit jacket that Laura wears, mm-hmm. where it's like striped. Yes, yes. And it's when With she big, like big makes a phone pads. call, but Waldo's like, "Do you really want to make that phone call mm-hmm. or whatever?" Yeah. Um, I really, really liked yeah. that that suit jacket it's a lot. Very, I thought it was cool. It's very eighties looking. Like I never thought about the eighties having a full. Maybe that's revival, why I like but, it. <laughs> yeah, it's because it's got the huge shoulder pads and the tiny little waist. Yeah. Yeah, I also have an obsession with stripes. I'm realizing like it was a few weeks ago because I'm considering because I've had this sorry tangent, but I've had the same wardrobe for like five years now and I'm getting bored. (laughs) So I was going through my closet and I was like, okay, what can I donate? What should I keep? And I just was looking at I was like 75, if not 80 percent of the shirts that I own are stripes. Interesting. So love me a good striped shirt. Uh, Anyway. I love I a like stripe that too. It's hard that to go wore. wrong with stripes. Yeah. 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 All right. What were we talking about again? Because <laughs> we were just sort of randomly talking uh, about Clint Eastwood's <laughs> pants. <laughs> <laughs> we could go on for another 10 minutes on, uh, on those pants. Should we just watch the sketches live on the podcast? <laughs> <laughs> live reaction, live commentary. <laughs> yeah, exactly. People only hear it, they can't see just it. Put it, put it in a timestamp to help them this follow is the, along this is the content that the that the listeners the people to demand your pick movie podcast really want <laughs> stop sending us emails about this you guys <laughs> <laughs> oh, all right well um yeah i'm trying to think what else i mean there's so many things that i want to talk about and yet i feel like we've also covered so many things uh i love the character of- i have a question oh, i the, and i would think if anyone would know you would know mm-hmm. Is the extra, extra read all about it, was that ever actually a thing, like, in real life, or was it always just a movie thing? That is a great question. Because I feel like it's set in movies from then, and now it's kind of used as almost a cliche type of joke Mm -hmm. thing in modern movies, but I'm like, was this just something that someone came up with one day in a script, or was this inspired by what was actually happening on the streets? Because that happens in this movie. Someone literally says, extra, extra, read all about it. I would it. imagine it's one of those things that, like, I mean, I would imagine it goes back to the days of, you know, newsies and people having to go out and physically sell newspapers and try and make the headlines as exciting as possible, or else people wouldn't buy them. And so you were probably saying things like, oh my gosh, this, you know, special edition train derailment kills thousands like you know try and make things as exciting as possible this is like an extra edition of the newspaper because of this thing is so significant and so that probably just got devolved into a theatrical shorthand of extra extra read all about it because it's like the same thing every time it's never Mm -hmm. like it never changes from that it's never like read all about it extra it's like it's always extra extra pause read all about it <laughs> well yeah it's it's always like, that's always the uh-huh. cadence yeah it's like how you all there are a lot of different you know sort of like dialogue shorthands and tropes that people will work into scripts just because you need someone to communicate a particular bit of information and that's the one that everyone right. collectively understands yeah can we can we talk about mark a little bit because mm. i feel like I feel like you and I might have, I I guess I really just want to hear your perspective on him because for me, this very well could have to do with the acting performance, but he just felt very one note to me and I was not invested in him at all. I was like, oh, this is just the guy that we're following around who's basically the vessel through which Mm -hmm. 
we l- learn what's happening. <laughs> and, and I was like, okay, but who actually are you? Are, but I don't know. He just felt, he felt very flat to me. His acting just was very like one note, very dry. You, I yeah. get it. Like the classic 1940s investigator. That's a thing. I get it. But he was just so monotone and he never, he he was very unexpressive with his face, but not in a way that seemed intentional. It was just in a way that felt like you don't know what to do with your face. So you're just not doing anything with it. I, I don't know. I just, for me, I had issues with him, but I want to hear your perspective because it sounds like you connected with him quite a bit. Yeah. And I will say I might be a bit biased because as I said, I've seen Dana Andrews and other things. I have really liked him in, in other things. And I, I think he's, I'm not going to say he's one of the greats, but I think he, he is capable of some doing, doing some very good acting. Um, hmm. I also find him was this kind of movie like earlier else. on um, was this movie like early on in his career early yeah actually the year before he was in a, a western called the Oxbow Incident which he's really really good in um, playing a character who basically spends the entire movie begging for his life um, really good movie um, but yeah so to me and again this might be just this is my interpretation and I connect with it I'm not saying that this is necessarily the only way to read it but for me I read it as this character is intentionally being played as stoic and um hard-boiled like closed off and so part of the part of his journey through the movie and he only you know those layers only get peeled back a little bit by the end but for me I find that very rewarding because I I read the opening scenes as being intentionally very stoic is um so you know we he's introduced as this character who's kind of this hero cop who the newspapers know about because he's the guy who is in this big gangster battle and he's you know he has this leg full of lead they say you know he was he's been shot multiple times in the line of duty but he was able to bring down this big gangster and so people know about him and he's very dismissive of all of this he's just like yeah yeah that was me whatever and so for me, that kind of informs my view of his character as being someone who is probably dealing with some sort of residual PTSD from that incident and who also has a personality of being very undemonstrative and um, sort of, I think he's a really good cop and part of his strategy for being a good cop, or a good detective, I should say, is intentionally taking himself out of the equation so many times when he's interviewing people instead of you know staring at them or getting in their face or intimidating them he sits down and he starts playing that little game (laughs) you know the Mm -hmm. the little baseball game that he has he basically waits for them to incriminate themselves he's like i'm just gonna sit here and let you talk Mm -hmm. until i get what i need because i know that you're gonna say something Mm -hmm. that's gonna help me get where i need to yeah go. exactly and i think that's part strategy and also he mentions at some point it helps him to keep his nerves calm and i think that's part of it too and so when i see him see that performance the sense that i get is that this is someone who has something going on underneath but he deals with it by being having this very placid very so, um, sort of stoic surface and so throughout the film as that um stoicism is kind of stripped away and you know people keep waldo in particular keeps prodding him they're like oh you're acting really weird you're in love with laura you know how crazy that is you're such a weirdo 
And he just deals with it by getting really even more flat, but also really annoyed. And he's like, get out of here. Mm -hmm. But you can tell that that actually is affecting him. And so then when Laura Mm -hmm. comes back and he's shocked, but you can also tell he's pleased and... You know, mm-hmm. her, the whole sort of issue. The way he like wipes his eyes. Oh, my goodness. Like do a double take. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and like this, these little sort of side smiles, you know, you can kind of tell that when he's like relieved at something, the whole drama of is she actually or is she not in, um, engaged to Shelby? And she'll tell him and he's sort of she's not and he'll sort of relax and then he'll find out it's on again and you can see him getting like visibly yeah, gruffer. he's very invested he's so he invested keeps asking the question to like anyone who he comes in contact whether it's waldo or shelby or Lori. he's like okay so she said this <laughs> but is it actually but blah, yeah. blah, blah. i'm like dude does it does it matter <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> like but for him it does for him mm-hmm. it does yeah well someone please tell this man is it on or is it off he's dying but yeah <laughs> so and you know i'm just that that's the kind of character I often um, connect with is I really love a stoic character who has something going on underneath and you can see I know Tatum is already smirking <laughs> you can see things uh... peeking out and then by the end he finally he and he realizes that Laura likes him back and they can start dating each other and I think it's very sweet do they actually at the end decide that they're gonna date is that like a thing? Well, I know that they have their little kiss at the door, but is there ever a moment when it's like, okay, Shelby's in, in the past and we're going to like get together now type of well, thing? Well, I don't remember. Yeah. <laughs> well, there is the I scene. I was so confused by the end. I was like, we have that. There's so, because mm-hmm. the end is just the culmination of all of these things. I'm like, oh, so this happened, but this happened, but this happened. And mm-hmm. this, blah, 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 blah. and I'm like, ah! <laughs> what happened? So by the end, I was up? like, I just, I can't. I can't think anymore. Yeah. yeah. I mean, as with many movies, particularly those that are like action noir thriller things, the question of like, are these two people destined for a long term relationship is probably not this. These are people coming together under extremely, you know, traumatic circumstances. Most likely this is not going to work out, but we can always wish. Um, But basically after he um, so Laura being found alive um and it being discovered that diane redford is the one who was killed immediately throws suspicion on either laura or shelby i theoretically which is not the aunt that is the model correct from correct okay we never see diane redford alive we only see her in a photograph once otherwise we are she's only ever referred to oh by other characters. i thought i thought we Okay, yeah, that's just another thing I was confused yeah. about because I thought we did see her. Maybe that's why mm-hmm. I thought that the aunt was the model because that sequence where where Shelby and What's-Her-Face are sitting down at the table mm-hmm. eating dinner and Laura walks in and sees them and confronts yeah. them and is like, oh, why are you guys having dinner? Like, she she has my little whatever pocketbook yeah, or the thing, case, whatever yeah. it is. But... Now I'm realizing that that's because the aunt is in love with Shelby, Mm -hmm. not because that is him with the model. Yeah. Okay. I'm in my defense. It makes (laughs) sense that I was confused between the two of them. It's not because it's not because I think everybody looks the same. It's because in that in Mm -hmm. that scene where we do see her, Mm -hmm. 
I literally thought that that was the okay. model in that yeah. scene. No, that, I did I, not realize it was. The I can aunt. understand that confusion. It is. It's really confusing when there is a pivotal character in a movie who's never actually seen on screen. That is very confusing. Yeah, basically the the character of Shelby is a charming sleazebag who always has multiple women running after him. Always has multiple women that he's seeing at the side. On the side, he. I think he genuinely does. I don't want to say love Laura, but you know really likes laura and would love to be married he to cares her. for her more than he cares for other yeah people. <laughs> he's incapable of being monogamous and Anne mm-hmm. understands that about him and is okay with it which is why she's like to she tells laura i think i would be much better for him than you would be because i am willing to accept she's okay him with it. yeah as he is mm-hmm. laura is not willing to accept that or at least maybe she thinks she is but she probably would not be yeah, yeah yeah um anyway so sorry where was i going at before that yeah so at the end so basically um when diane redfern is revealed to have been the murder victim instead it is um shelby and laura who are the prime suspects and so the next portion of the movie is mark trying to figure out this woman that i've sort of developed this obsession with is she actually a murderer or not and it mm-hmm. eats away at him. He's like, I need to know the truth. And so he finally brings her in for this interrogation scene into the station. It's like the only time he actually goes into a police station. He puts two super bright lights right, right in, her in her face. face. I'm like, dude, calm down. What does like that? I don't think that's going to do anything to help accomplish yeah. what it is you're going for. You know, he does okay. find the killer. I will not say his uh, his methods are direct, strictly by the book. Anyway, let let me. Sorry, just to interrupt real quick if that's okay uh Mm -hmm. but you kind of brought it up and I wanted to mention it anyway I feel like Mark I'm like dude who do you answer to (laughs) like like I never see you talking to other like you don't have a partner well he has other cops but they all seem to work under him I don't know that he answers to anyone yeah I'm just like I don't like who has like (laughs) What is the authority? Because there's just certain things where it's like, oh, he is all by himself walking through a crime scene mm-hmm. and picking up things and touching them. And I'm like, he could be the murderer <laughs> and he could be like moving yeah. things around. And But no one else is yeah. there. like to be. It just felt very. Mm-hmm. And yes, this is the 1940s. Blah, blah, right. blah. They just discovered. There were just there were there were but not even fingerprints. But it's like he could be moving evidence. Like mm-hmm. he even says to someone. Well, to one be point, fair, like, Do you know, it's. He was like, do you know how big of a deal it is to, like, to withhold evidence or, yeah. well, or okay. whatever? Well, okay, to be fair, it's made very clear that the police have already come through and extensively inventoried the crime scene, dusted for fingerprints, done all the for sort of forensic work that they were capable of do- doing at that time. Because he mentions that when Shelby tries to put the key back and pretend it was there all along, he's like, nope, that was not there. So I think the idea is that all the grunt work has already been done. And now you can bring in the detective who can just kind of treat the scene however he wants, knowing that, you know, any photographs or cataloging has already been. I get that. I just don't think that it makes sense to have someone to have like complete free reign and seemingly no accountability for anything that he does. I mean, it's like a I don't film care noir. what time like, period this is. Yeah. Like, you've got to have somebody that's checking in on you to make sure that, like, 
you're doing so I, mean, I don't know yeah. it just I was just like he's doing whatever he wants and it just it's not it wasn't necessarily like a plot hole mm-hmm. that bothered me I just found it funny yeah. I was like this is one of those things that's in a movie and you're meant to not think about mm-hmm. it it's like ah don't overthink it it just is what yeah. it is and I'm like I understand that that's what I'm supposed to do but also it's really funny <laughs> that he can just do whatever he wants whenever he mm-hmm. wants and doesn't have a problem <laughs> like there's no problem with it it's one of the delightful tropes of film noirs that police bosses don't exist unless the um, detective <laughs> is going off the rails and i need your ga- badge and gun on my desk right now you're off the case <laughs> yep, yep. <laughs> anyway sorry anyway. i just wanted to you bet you mentioned it briefly and i wanted to yeah. like just talk about that for for a hot minute but sorry to interrupt. yeah no that's okay um yeah I think I, I mean I was just sort of like going through I think what I interpret to be Mark's internal journey throughout that movie because I think mm-hmm. yeah like he he needs to figure out if this woman he's obsessed with is actually a murderer or not and um I think when he shows up Laura is attracted to him and he's certainly a contrast from the other men in her life and so that moment when they're he's finally like i i really needed to know and also i couldn't like i needed official surroundings which i don't know if he means it that way but like what does that mean <laughs> exactly i needed official surroundings i think there's this no clue there's this moment of sort of breaking of tension between the two of them where they can kind of be free to be like oh we're both into each other you know and she kind of smiles at him Mm -hmm. she calls him mark for the first time he kind of smiles at her and then it's the next day i think um that waldo basically laura has told him everything and waldo is like okay you're into this police guy he's not good enough for you he calls women dames he's so uncultured blah 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 and so it's just kind of accepted that like they're into each other and that's I think the the that's the extent of their romance is that this sort of implicit understanding of like we like each other we're attracted to each other you know if all of this goes well we're gonna we're gonna try this out we're gonna see if this happens of course after what then happens the traumatic actual ending who knows if that's gonna work out <laughs> you know yeah but I love how much dame is used as an insult he calls women I'm like dames. I feel like if like if any if any woman were to be called a dame today, I feel like it'd be like, ooh, a dame! Mm-hmm. Like wow, that's dame, so Judy elegant Dench. and dame elevated. Yeah. Wow, <laughs> almost feels like royalty, mm-hmm. but apparently nope. not back then. Um, Doll in a lot Atlantic City got once got a fox fur out of me. <laughs> <laughs> um, so I'm curious. I wanted to ask you what. What are the acting performances in this movie that work for you? And what are the ones that don't? Um, I mean, basically everything in this movie works for me. I understand when okay. people say that, like, um, that Mark is too stoic. Like, is, there's not really, is too flat, I guess. Like, again, I read it as an, as an intentional performance of someone who's kind of stoic and repressing, but... I can understand reading it instead as just a sort of flat, bad performance. And I definitely understand the sort of critique that Gene Tierney is also too flat and does not quite live up to what everyone says about Laura. Although, again, I tend more to blame the some of the choices with the writing and the framing because um, I think maybe with a little bit more focus on Laura, she could have shown a little bit more 
But I think those are the two performances that I do. I do understand critiques of them, even if they, they work for me. Hmm. Interesting. Yeah, because for me, it, it's not that I think any of the performances are bad. Mm-hmm. It's just that for me, I'm like, they just fall flat and they feel, and they feel kind of blah. Yeah. So for me, the only performances that actually work for me mm. are Waldo and Bessie. Mm. I think that I think that the two of them are doing a really, really great job. Um, I was going to ask you what you thought of Bessie. Of... I love Bessie so oh, I th- much. Oh, I loved her. I thought she was great. I wish there was more of her. But I also feel like the fact that there's only a little bit of her makes her feel more mm-hmm. special. Just a little sprinkling um, of Bessie. She's the, the Thelma yeah. Ritter of this uh, movie. Yeah. So the two of them, I was very impressed with their performances, but everyone else, I was like, this feels very, this feels very mm-hmm. one note. Yeah. I mean, Waldo me. is just Clifton Webb. Clifton Webb, which, fun fact, um, he was primarily a Broadway star before this movie. And when they were first developing this movie, uh, Daryl Zanuck wanted to cast, I don't know his name, but some guy who was like known, he'd played like villains and heavies and other movies and stuff like that. And Preminger was like, no, we need to cast someone who is not going to immediately read as villainous to the audience. And Preminger, Preminger, sorry, Clifton Webb at this time was primarily a Broadway actor on the stage. Like he hadn't done movies, anything on screen for like 20 years. He did a lot of musicals. He did a lot of comedies on the stage. And so if anyone knew who he was at this time, that's the context that they would have been bringing to him of him being this sort of like lighter character who's kind of like, you know, agile and funny and he sings and he dances and stuff like that. And so all of that, I think it's so interesting watching this movie and kind of bringing that context to it. Um, and of course, he's he's absolutely phenomenal. Like he plays the all the different sides of Waldo so well, the like you know, sort of cultured, witty, um, you know, you can believe that he is like selfish, but in a very charming way. And you can, you can, my lunch is more important than your entire (laughs) life's work. Yeah. And so you can, I feel like you can see what Laura, maybe not saw in him, but tried to convince herself that she saw in him that he was, he does have this sort of heart of gold underneath it all. But then when this, the, the switch is flipped, and you start to see the really jealous, possessive, controlling side and the side that's basically at the end going to try and execute a murder-suicide. Su- it's so chilling, and he does it so well. I don't, I don't know if this is a crazy thing to say, but when I was watching this movie, I was like, you know who would have been really convincing in this role if they'd either been alive back mm-hmm. then or if this movie was remade today? Christoph Waltz. I felt like I could, I was like, I could see Christoph Waltz playing this, this character. Um, but yeah, anyway, I don't know why that came to my mm-hmm. mind, but I was like, I feel like Christoph yeah. Waltz could be a good make Waldo. Him, make him German, um, make him Austrian. Oh uh, yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, I guess I could see it. Yeah. I don't know. I just, I would love I miss to, Christoph I would Waltz. love to I need see more him. of him in my life. He was like in so many movies and then mm-hmm. he did some like terrible rom-coms and he I'm did like, rom-coms. Where, where are I you? Hardly... No, he did. He did, yeah. I think he was like a father in a couple rom coms of like I'm the whole I'm the dad oh, who's like I don't like your boyfriend. See, the thing um, for me with Christoph Waltz is, um, I'm he's a very talented actor, but in American movies, he tends to only play the same person, and so I just I really I'd love to see him play some other character. You know, he tends to play variations mm-hmm. on the same character. 
Yeah. I mean, I will say that it again, like major tangent, <laughs> but I will say that Christoph Waltz, I won't say it's the same performance, but his performance that he gives in Inglorious Bastards and Django Unchained are very similar in a lot of ways. They're very different in the sense that in Inglorious Bastards, he plays a very complex villain. Mm. And then in Django Unchained, he's not really a villain at all. Mm. But there are a lot of similarities. And I remember my boy Leo. I love Leo. He's one of my favorite actors of all time. I mean, he's my favorite actor of all time. Him and Kate Blanchett. I'm mm-hmm. like, bow down. I love you both. But um, I was so pissed when Christoph Waltz won the Best Supporting Actor nomination or the mm-hmm. the Best Supporting Actor Oscar for Django Unchained because I was like, you just won this Oscar mm-hmm. for the same performance in Inglorious yep. Bastards, which he deserved in Inglorious sure. Bastards. But I was like, in Django Unchained, my boy Leo <laughs> gave a gave a way better performance. He sliced his hand open. There like, are multiple memes. I just and also even just aside from that dramatic whatever of him breaking his hand because that happens with actors sometimes. But I just felt like Leo deserves that supporting actor win, and I was mad that Christoph Waltz won that. Not that I am anti Christoph Waltz. I love Christoph <laughs> Waltz, but I'm like, dude, you just won this. For the same role a few years ago. Yeah. No. Yep. Well, sorry. sometimes and I the think Oscars at that point, the way they are. And I think at that point, we were still in the time period that Leo had never won an Oscar. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. And so every like every time he was nominated for anything, I was like, this is going to be this the time the that he's going to win. <laughs> and then every time he didn't win, I was like, damn it. Yeah. Um. And then he won for The Revenant, which I'm like, Ugh. I know it's like I mean, it's one of those now he's got an it's Oscar very much win, one of those like on. we gotta just get it out of the way we gotta just give him one for anything you know and then we can all relax Ugh. but if we'd only uh, held on a I, few more years once upon a time in his, Hollywood he really deserved his it. best role ever hot take his best role ever once upon a time in Hollywood I, I think that is agree a I don't even think that's a hot take. show stopping oh I, I know a lot of people that are like it's fine I'm like no 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 it is no it's phenomenal. it is a master class. like it is incredible um yeah I'm like aviator once upon a time in Hollywood those are my favorite but also once upon a time in Hollywood is top 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 that is my favorite Leo performance um anyway tangent sorry uh but love leo and also quentin tarantino and also Kate blanchett and you know should we just say all of our favorite actors <laughs> tatum is so trying to avoid getting <laughs> avoid talking about this movie no i'm not i just once i start talking about i know once it's hard once you start talking about leo it's hard to stop leo and quentin tarantino i just like well yeah should, should we talk, I am, should I am we talk intrigued about by your idea, though. Should I we actually, talk about the Killers of Flower Moon trailer now? <laughs> it just dropped today for anyone who's listening. So it might be slightly on the brain for... Um, it's not like us. I've been waiting for that movie to come out for like <laughs> nine years. <laughs> um, I am intrigued, actually, by your, your casting ideas. I actually would... I, this is one of those movies where I'm like, I think this movie is almost perfect but also i think a really really interesting remake with the right director and the right cast could be incredible Mm. i would love to see this movie Mm -hmm. remade if it was done well so yeah yeah Yeah, i'd be down for that i i think it's possible i think it could be redone and 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 done well i don't think it's something where it's like this is untouchable and Mm -hmm. no i'm like no i feel like it it could be because there's some movies where it's like don't touch it don't touch it Mm -hmm. let it be and this is one where I'm like, it's great, but also it would be interesting yeah. to see it remade now. Again, it's like, like you said, all the elements well. are there. I would just love to see yeah. it done through the eyes totally. of a female 
director or a female screenwriter. I think that could be so, so interesting. Yeah, I, I agree. Um, anyway, I was about to go on a, on a tangent about Greta Gerwig and the way she adapts things, but (laughs) (laughs) if we want to get into hot take territory, uh, I mean, I love Greta Gerwig. She's made one of my favorite movies of the last 10 years, but also there's one movie she made that I get very angry about, but anyway, I love Greta Gerwig. She's, I, I absolutely love her. She's very inspirational. It's just, there's one movie that she made that I'm like, this makes me really a little bit of a sense of game. Yeah. All right. Anyway, it's little women in case anyone's wondering. And I don't think it's a hot take that I don't like it. I just think that there's a lot of people that don't necessarily know the source material and like the history of Louisa May Alcott is like enough to really. Well, there are people out there who will say this is one of the best works of adaptation ever. And that I don't understand. Like you can love the movie. That's fine. But yeah. this is not a good work of adaptation. This is no. creating a new... And that's fine. You know, I Pride and Prejudice, one of my favorite movies of all time. Not a great work of adaptation, but a great example of taking a source material and reimagining it and creating your own story. And that's what Little Women is mm-hmm. doing. And if it works for you, that's fine. But... Yeah, I think... I'm like, if you like Little Women and you haven't read the book and all, your only context is this iteration like this adaptation of the book like this is the only Little Women movie that you've seen mm-hmm. I can understand why you'd like it if you don't have any connection to anything else like yeah it looks nice the acting's good like there's some nice the acting moments in is there with the script sometimes and... good sorry <laughs> uh, that's actually very true there are certain performances that are not good also the cast I, I'm not gonna go into like right, there's need, a lot of casting we need decisions to get back that I'm to the very upset movie. about we can talk more about this <laughs> <laughs> I can just okay, see I'm, I'm going like, to stop bubbling there's up. a lot of there things that bubbling it's up like Tatum it's like the snowball is really starting to gain traction. And I'm like, I have a lot more things I could say. I'm not going to do it. I'm going to stop now. I'm so sorry. Jiva. We're at like an hour and a half and I don't want to like take up any more time not talking about this movie. Go ahead. Uh, it's okay. It's okay. I think we were winding down anyway. We were talking about, well, we were talking about Waldo, how great he is yes. in that role. Yes. We were talking about Bessie, yes. um, Laura's maid, how much we both love her mm-hmm. performance. Um, I loved her. Yeah. Did you want to say, say some more about her? I don't know. I just felt like she was a breath of fresh air. I felt like she was the only person in this movie where I felt like she was just fully her. Mm -hmm. She wasn't trying to put on a show. She wasn't trying to hide a certain part of herself. She wasn't trying to, you know, pretend to be like, she was just her. And she was like, I'm upset. So I'm going to cry and I'm not going to apologize for it. Or she's like, I love Laura so much that all I want to like, I just want to stay here and work and, you know, don't send me home. I like, this Mm -hmm. is, you know, I just, I just felt like she was the most honest character in this movie in terms of just very true to herself. And I found it to be very refreshing. And I liked seeing someone have a response to Laura's death that was not having to also juggle like the stakes Mm -hmm. of what it means now that she's dead it's like no I'm just dealing with an emotional response to someone that I love dying and I think she serves um, as I loved her I thought she was great I think she serves she's really smart too like she says certain Mm -hmm. things it's like oh wow you like have a good perspective and we need to hear what you have Mm -hmm. to say type of thing yeah yeah she's obviously she's very good at her job she's very bottle thing observant yeah she's very she's a great employee like she understands the needs of her employer and wants to 
um yeah wants to like care for this woman who's cared for her even when she thinks she's dead um i think she serves as a really important counterpoint too to you know again there's that issue that we hear more about laura than and her Mm -hmm. qualities than we actually see them on screen but she is this Mm -hmm. great evidence of the fact you know people say that laura is not just beautiful but she's also this really good person that she's very warm that she has a lot of friends that she's very inviting and thoughtful and kind and bessie's kind of the living embody of embodiment of that like bessie's this character that she you know she doesn't take shit from anyone you know she's very mark shows up and starts asking her questions and she's very a cab which i always find funny um but you know she is devoted to laura because laura is we can tell a good person who has been really kind to her. And I think that's important. I mean, I think she, maybe other people said this and I just don't remember, but I remember Bessie specifically saying, oh no, I know that she couldn't do Mm -hmm. this. Like Laura would never, she would never do something like Mm -hmm. this. And I just really liked the fact that someone who really, really knew her and didn't have anything to hide or cover up, she was honestly saying I know for a fact that Laura would never do this. Mm -hmm. And yeah, I just felt like Bessie was this touchstone to reality and actually like who Laura is as a real person, as opposed to, you know, Mm -hmm. all these other people that are just trying to get something out of her or building her into something that she's not or whatever. Bessie was like, I know who she is. I love her for mm -hmm. who she is. And I, and I know, like I I know who she is really. And I'm not trying to change it or whatever. Well, a layer in this movie that I find really intriguing. And again, this is kind of me digging under the surface and sort of clawing things out that I think are in there. Although maybe (laughs) I'm just reading into them because I've seen this movie so many times. But I find the class element of it to be really interesting. I mean, this movie is set almost entirely among the upper class, you know, the sort of wealthy elite Um, and Mark is coming in as this sort of more working class, uncultured, normal, down-to-earth person, and then Bessie is the only other person of that kind of world, even though they're they're very different worlds, but they're not the sort of moneyed elite. And the little glimpses of Laura that we get, I feel like, are kind of contradictory, because the sense that I get in general is that she is not of that moneyed elite either. She's a woman who has worked and she's career driven. When Waldo first meets her, she's like 17 years old and she's already got a job and she's ambitious and she's going out on her own initiative and trying to get endorsements for her company. Like this woman, she wants to work. She loves to work. She wants to get to the top. Um, And so, um, and she also like the fact that she connects with Mark and she connects with these other people who are not necessarily part of that wealthy circle indicates to me that that's not really that maybe she has these origins in um like a family or an environment that is not you know not necessarily coming from wealth but then at the same time they refer to the fact that Anne Treadwell is her aunt which makes again makes me very confused about what her family situation is I wish we had a little more (laughs) info um but I I just I just find that really intriguing and you know Waldo part of his building up Laura and feeling like he created her is like I taught her what to wear. I taught her how to do her hair. I introduced her to all these wealthy friends. Like I helped her like set up her apartment and everything. Like clearly he's trying to turn her into this high class wealthy woman. And she seems to take to it. Like she's, a, you know, she's a an intelligent woman. She seems to have good taste. But is that necessarily 
who she is, you know, is how much of that is her and how much of that is, is just her adapting to what Waldo is imposing on her. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I almost wonder if there's something, and this is just me externally processing, it's not a fully formed thought, but I almost wonder if there's something there in terms of, like something there thematically in terms of having that um, that large portrait on the wall of like, this is the, you know, th- this apartment is a whole, like, Mm -hmm. this piece of art along with the apartment that's one version of laura Mm. like the apartment and the painting that that is that version of laura but laura as a person it's almost like she's a ghost living in her own home Mm. of like the portrait on the wall is who the apartment communicates that she is and that's what everyone else is comfortable with her being but she's almost like yeah but that's that's not me i mean i'd have to watch it again but i feel like i feel like from what I remember, there is kind of a sense of her not necessarily feeling fully safe in her home. And maybe mm-hmm. that's just because of the circumstances of like, let's lock the door to make sure no one gets in, which would make anyone feel unsafe in their home. Yeah. So I don't know if it's just because of the circumstances or if it's something thematically that's put in there. But I, I feel like, you know, the portrait is such a it's such a like a prominent thing that is seen in this movie that I have to I have to assume that there's a reason why it's there. There's a reason why it's that size. There's a reason why it's those colors, why it's on the wall in that place and why people keep looking at it. Um, yeah. So I, I feel like there's almost this, this concept of there's two versions of Laura. There's this perfect painted, you know, etiquette, Society woman. savvy yeah. version of her. And then there's actually her. Um, yeah. So, no, I think that's. Anyway, I think that, that's, that's really... maybe me digging deep into things that are there no. either. But you know, <laughs> I think that's a really good, really insightful point. Yeah, and I, I mean, to bolster that, the movie ends with this shot of, you know, like Waldo. He basically kills, tries to kill Laura, fails, kills himself, and Laura and Mark rush forward, and the movie ends with this shot of the clock that um, Waldo had given Laura that's broken. And I think it could very easily, maybe in a, a very a slightly more melodramatic version of the the screenplay, have ended with maybe the building on fire and the portrait going up in flames or something like that. But either way, it is ending on this idea of this beautiful, um, you know, wealthy, ob- uh, expensive object that Waldo has given her has been cracked and shattered, and now that part of her life is not going to. Um, is not going to work anymore. And, you know, you'd certainly bet that she's going to be moving out of that apartment as soon as she possibly can. Like, two murders have been committed there. Yeah. I, just to kind of, I guess, say one final thing, because I realized we didn't really talk about the ending too much, mm. but kind of to go back into just how I find Waldo to be, quite honestly, the most intriguing mm-hmm. character in this story. But I really liked the idea of he wants to kill Laura because he doesn't want anyone else to have her. Mm -hmm. And I find that to be really interesting because his perspective is not, I'm going to go kill the people that are taking her away from me, or I'm going to kill myself because I can't take it. It's I'm going to kill her because no one else can have her. And I just find that to be a really interesting plot line and character choice for that person. I'm not going to like fully analyze what that means right now because we've been talking for a long time, but 
I just think that, yeah, I just think that's a really, really interesting character choice. And I think there's a lot there and it says a lot about who he is and quite frankly, how selfish he is. And and that's established from the beginning that, you know, he cares more about his lunch than someone else's career and, um, and goals and, and passions. And yeah, I just feel like it's a final, I don't know, just like a final point that, yeah, yeah, he's actually a really, really selfish person that he's not even willing to take himself out of the scenario or harm the people that I'm not saying this is true, but maybe in the way that he sees it, harming the people that are guilty of this crime Mm -hmm. that he sees in his head. He's like, no, I'm going to kill the innocent person who is being taken away. You know, it's Laura um, herself, you know, the idea that Laura could exist in the world, making choices and living a life that does not include him or does not live up to the standards that he has imposed on her. It's like he's projected all of himself onto her yeah and so if she does not does not comply he can't take it and he has to destroy that that self that he's put onto her yeah it's totally selfishly motivated um but also really interesting Mm -hmm. because there's a lot going on with him so yeah yeah but ultimately i'm glad he met his demise (laughs) at the end because he would have gone on killing people for the rest of his life because apparently with laura's track record people are going to be falling in love with her left and right so (laughs) (laughs) yeah well at least i mean when it's so interesting with the other men you know he just sort of manipulated and acted behind the scenes to drive them away um but I guess there is this element of escalation about it. And I find the question of how much did Laura know really interesting. Because when um, mm-hmm. when Laura first emerges on, emerges on the scene, you know, she disobeys Mark's orders. She talks to Shelby, even when he told her not to talk to anybody. And then when Mark questions her about it, she's like, I've never been and I never will be compelled by anything I didn't do of my own free will. And I believe that she believes of it of herself but at the same time she is so in the thrall like under the manipulation of waldo and so there's this growth that she needs to go through and finally realizing what a monster he is and when it's revealed she has this moment of like i i I, that makes total sense I, i feel like i've realized i've known this the entire time and i've just not wanted to see it which i find really Mm -hmm. intriguing like this question of this you know really bright you know, ambitious woman who um, is so successful in her life otherwise, and yet is, I guess, unwilling to see how much of a problem Waldo was because, you know, she's too grateful to him. She owes so much to him. She, um, she, he, he seems to, you know, when he's being good to her, he's very good to her. You know, she doesn't want to just cut that out of her life, but realizing oh, no, this is this is gone. This is way out of my control. This is something that needs to end, and I should have ended it earlier. And the fact that she blames herself for what ultimately happens is really intriguing. Being like, if I had said something earlier, maybe this would never have happened. Maybe Diane Redfern would never have died. Like, I feel partially well, responsible. Yeah, I think I think in that moment, she's like, I killed him, or I killed mm-hmm. her just as much as Waldo did. And then Mark's like, what do you mean? She's like, well... No, I didn't say anything and blah, blah, yeah. blah. Yeah, I didn't but, stand up to him earlier. Yeah, yeah. So j- just as like, I guess <laughs> this is a final brief point that I just personally wanted to touch on. The bathtub. I think it's funny. <laughs> it's such I a think good, it's a hilarious incredible choice. Incredible opening The sequence. fact that like, 
that's kind of how we're introduced to him and not just him in the bathtub, but him being like totally not like embarrassed about this man. He's never mm-hmm. seen like seeing him naked, getting out of a bathtub. <laughs> like it's like, this is such an interesting character. Yeah. introduction. Well, it- but I think it says a lot about a him mm-hmm. being kind of weird and mentally unstable, but also him being like, so confident in himself that like, yeah, I can walk around naked and I don't care. Mm-hmm. Like, yeah, if it makes you uncomfortable because it makes me feel cool and like makes me feel like I have the upper hand. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, I mean, there, there's and there, I feel like there's sort of latent undercurrents, too, that various people have teased out of it because, you know, Waldo himself, like he is obsessive about Laura. But as far as we know, it's not like they've ever slept together. I don't know if he even wants to sleep with her. You know, he seems very asexual in a way. Um, Clifton Webb himself was, I believe, maybe not openly gay, but was was gay. Um, and I think that's a part of the performance as well. And so there's that idea of like, what exactly is the nature of his desire for Laura? And what is the nature of his desire for other people or lack of understanding of other people's um, thoughts and desires? Um, I don't know. I feel like there's some really interesting like other dimensions to to Waldo's character that are kind of wrapped up in that opening sequence and and the way that he interacts with Mark, the way he uses nudity to kind of try and get Mark off his guard, although it doesn't seem to work very very well, I think is really interesting. Yeah. Yeah, Waldo's the most important character. Or not important, the most mm-hmm. interesting character. I stand by yeah. it. Yeah. No, no. I you're you're definitely not wrong. Yeah. All right. Uh, I'm trying to see if there's anything else really that I want to talk about. I mean, we've we've gone through pretty much the entire movie. Um, are there any other like scenes that that stand out or um, little moments that you wanted to mention? I don't think so. I feel like I brought up everything that I understood. Everything mm-hmm. else, I'm like I I don't even know what yeah. happened, so I couldn't even talk <laughs> about it. Can we acknowledge, actually speaking of the opening scene, the uh, incredible line from Waldo where um, he's talking about, you know, he's describing his relationship with Laura and he's like, you know, Laura believed me to be just the best, you know, he's like the wisest and wittiest man in the world, but also the kindest and nicest. And and Mark's like, well, are you? And he's like, well, for her sake, I tried to be the kindest, nicest and wittiest, you know. Wow. And Mark is like, all right, well, did it work? <laughs> And Waldo has this incredible line where he says, let me put it this way. I should be sincerely sorry to see my neighbor's child devoured by wolves. Yep. <laughs> Sums up yep. his character. Mark is definitely a cut to the chase type mm-hmm. of person. Yeah. And Waldo is like, yeah. a, let me find the most florid way possible to tell you that I'm an absolute jerk. But make it sound very charming. I did write down this one line from the movie. I don't remember who says the first part. Maybe it's Waldo. Maybe it's Shelby. I don't mm-hmm. know. But someone is like saying how they're upset about Laura's death or whatever. And they're like, I should have stopped it. And then Mark goes, well, it's too late now. (laughs) Okay. Like super empathetic to talk to someone who's like supposedly grieving. Like, well, you didn't. So it's too late. (laughs) I remember that line. I don't remember the context, but yeah, it's a good one. Yeah. There's some really good. It's like good thought, but it's not going to change anything. They're dead Mm -hmm. and it's your fault. (laughs) (laughs) Sorry. All right. Um, All right. So let's move on. Talk a little bit about the legacy and uh, the awards that this movie received. So as I mentioned, this movie was a a box office hit. It was also a critical, critical hit. It won um, the Oscar for Best Black and White Cinematography. This was still the time when there were separate cinematography awards for black and white versus color film. 
It was also nominated for four other Oscars, Best Director for Otto Preminger, Best Adapted Screenplay, Best Supporting Actor for Clifton Webb, extremely well-deserved, should have won, and Best Black and White Art Direction. So I pulled two uh, reviews, um, this one from the uh, the 1940s from the New York Times, which is critical of the movie and I think kind of um, is in the same similar lines to what we've been talking about. So New York Times says, at the risk of being unchivalrous, we venture to say that when the lady herself appears upon the scene via a flashback of events leading up to the tragedy, she is a disappointment. Virginia Tierney simply doesn't measure up to the word portrait of her character. Pretty, indeed, but hardly the type of girl we'd expected to meet. For Miss Tierney plays at being a brilliant, sophisticated advertising executive with the wild-eyed innocence of a college junior. <laughs> that was a little bit harsh, but, you know, we, like, we've talked about kind of this is one of the flaws yeah. of the movie. All right, and then Roger Ebert, our favorite, uh, good old Roger Ebert. In 2002, he reviewed this movie. He gave it four stars, and uh, in his review, he wrote... The whole film is of a piece, contrived, artificial, mannered, and yet achieving a kind of perfection in its balance between low motives and high style. What makes the movie great, perhaps, is the casting. The materials of a B-grade crime potboiler are redeemed by Waldo Lidecker, walking through every scene as if afraid to step in something. And I just think that is, A, sums up my feelings about this movie, about how it is sort of very artificial in certain ways, and yet the way that those elements are combined you know it's the elements that could make it this sort of b movie and yet it it is so elevated by the talent of Otto Preminger behind the the camera um a lot of the performances and the craft at work I think it's just it's just such a great movie and it's also just a beautiful piece of writing in my opinion that idea of Waldo Lidecker walking through every scene as if afraid to step in something like that's just gorgeous gorgeous writing this is why <laughs> Ebert was just the best anyway all right so um I mean we've we've talked quite a bit about my love for this movie <laughs> how comforting I find it how I just I just return to it again and again I think again you know I just I really you know, we've talked before about movies where the imperfections of them paradoxically causes us to want to dig further into them and makes them stick with us longer. And this is one of those movies for me because I really do wish that there was more of a focus on Laura and more of more attention paid to her as a character and the female perspective of this movie and drawing out that theme of a man who is imposing himself and his vision upon a woman an independent woman and and yet because those things are there even if they're under the surface and I wish they were displayed more I just I keep I keep coming back to it I keep clawing into it because I just there's so much subtext there there's so much there that's um between the lines that I just love it and so yeah I keep coming back to it plus again I just I know it's silly and it's Probably not going to work out, but I really do love the relationship between Laura and Mark. I I like their chemistry. I enjoy them together. So that's what has stuck with me about this movie. Is there anything about this movie that's moved you or do you think might stick with you? I honestly feel like I'd have to watch it again because in my mind, there's still so much of it that's just jumbled that I almost feel like I don't really have a full grasp of the story. So I guess like if I... You know, 
if anything, the thing that's going to stick with me, given what I understand about the film, is I, I did that twist was really unexpected. I did not. I was like, mm. "Whoa, she's alive!" Good. What is, I was actually very what? curious about whether you so, would um, figure out that was coming ahead of time. So I'm really glad to hear that you didn't. No, yeah, I was definitely shocked by it. So I think I think that's probably just going to. I think that's probably going to be what sticks with me because it it genuinely was a shock for me, and uh, I always appreciate when movies can can yeah, do that, especially a movie that's you know 80 years old. That says more about me than the movie, though. Like, I probably should have known this since it came out that long ago. But, you know. No, it's fine. I'm watching it now. So (laughs) there's a time for everything. All right. So, um, Tatum, what are we going to be watching and talking about next week? Yeah. So a little bit of a controversial choice for me. Wait, why um, is this controversial? Because this is a Disney Pixar film. Oh, I forgot about your vendetta against Disney. You forgot about my what? <laughs> the, the, yeah, I I am a very very strong hater of Disney and everything that Did they own have Pixar done at this time. I don't remember when they actually acquired. yes. Okay. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so I I am very upset with the things that Disney is doing and and basically everything about their business model um, nowadays. But this movie came out before. Disney really got into a place of just being a conglomerate that owns everything and is just anyway. So this movie for me, um, people listening are like, it is very, what on earth are they doing? <laughs> yeah. I, yeah, I could do a whole podcast episode about that. Um, but anyway, this is a movie that's very special to me. Um, I will share more about the context in which I saw it when we talk next week but we will be discussing the incredibles from 2004 um it is it is my favorite pixar film uh and for reasons that we will discuss next we should do like a top top three top five pixar movies or something oh yeah that would be fun let's that actually let's do that um but yeah so i'm really looking forward to talking about it this movie is hilarious it's a movie for people of all ages and it's just genuinely a fantastic film and it means a lot to me so um yeah we will talk about it next week i will try my best to minimize my disney hate um (laughs) but you know maybe we'll just talk about the incredibles within its own little bubble we could just go off on a tangent about leonardo dicaprio again (laughs) (laughs) did you know that leonardo dicaprio was actually considered to be one of the voice actors in the incredibles i not true uh Imagine Leonardo DiCaprio voicing a Pixar character. I mean, Samuel L. Jackson was in it. Um, but yeah, he's the, he's actually the voice of Jack-Jack the baby. Uh, Leonardo DiCaprio's best role, Jack-Jack in The Incredibles. Wow. Um, no, but okay. Yes, that's what we're talking about next week. So join us then. It's going to yeah. be fun. All right. Thanks so much for listening. Bye. Bye, everybody. Thanks for listening. If you want to get in touch with us, you can email us at yourpickpod at gmail.com. Our theme song was composed by Joel Rushton, and our podcast graphic was designed by Kara Shin. If you like this show and want to hear more, please rate and subscribe on your favorite podcast platform. We're excited to have you on this journey with us. Until next time.